0: Um, so, I guess the first topic that we have to talk about is warp. Um, so, um, can you talk a bit about why uh, you know, you guys introduced warp? Um, why is it important, uh, and what's the plan with warp in the future?
1: Yeah. So, the the main reason we wanted to introduce warps was I, I think we you know gotten good feedback from folks like yourself about just a lot of friction with um, using uh, in-app purchases to pay for connecting apps, right? Like, There's a lot of complexity there that I think um, makes it difficult. First one being Apple charges a 30% fee on top of whatever you pay, which makes it more expensive. Second one being both Apple and Google also limit the number of price points you can have. So let's say gas is cheaper today and we can do it for 80 cents instead of a dollar. Well, we can't actually do that because we're only allowed to have a certain number of price points in the app. Um, And so all of that makes that experience really complicated. So one way that we thought we could actually make this significantly better for users is to start with uh, sort of warps uh, or this like points like system where we can give our most active users, people who are contributing to, to Warpcast and to the Farcaster ecosystem, Uh, Warps and see if that would actually make it more likely that they would start using apps on the farcaster network and sure enough when we launched it um, We immediately noticed a bunch of people connecting apps actually a few people posted screenshots of connecting to a as well Uh, And we thought that was really cool. So that's stage one of the warps experiment We wanted to see like how can we reduce friction around doing on-chain actions and I think we're starting to think about, like, okay, what are other ways to get warps into the hands of people that are doing useful things on the ecosystem? And you have seen we have already started doing some of that with the cast rewards, where we actually send rewards to people who um, posted a lot of useful cast to the network in the past week. And we're going to run a bunch more experiments on other things that you might be able to do with warps uh, in the future. So hopefully we'll have something more to share later this week on that once we've scoped out some features.
0: Yeah. So, is warp a security?
1: Um,
0: very simple question. Warps
1: are very, very locked into Warpcast. They are not on chain. Uh, they cannot be exchanged for anything. They cannot be used for anything. And once they're once they're in Warpcast, the only thing you can do with them as of right now is adding signers. So they are very much very, very far away from any kind of tradable
0: token or anything in that category entirely. Okay, so, um, so so just to, to help me understand this, I guess the way to earn warp today is to cast high quality content, all right? And there is a black box that determines which cast uh, is is good, and then you know those people, the the authors of those good casts, will get rewarded. Is it how it basically works today?
1: Yeah, the, the, maybe the best thing to think about works is it's almost like credit card reward points, where in exchange for doing stuff or or taking action on the network, uh, Warpcast in particular comes back and gives you some number of points. And then you can use those points to do on-chain things like adding signers that Warpcast covers. And so the first experiment of how to distribute warps, we said, hey, everyone who was on before the beta and when we were permissionless and who helped test the app, hey, we gave everyone a hundred warps. And then we're also trying to figure out what are sustainable ways to give people warps going forward. And so one of those experiments is, is the cast experiment you mentioned. Um, we're going to see how that works for a few weeks. If we find it useful, we'll keep doing it in the future. We may also play around with other ways to, to give warps to users um, that, that we haven't tried yet. Okay, I
0: think you should add a, a rule that says if you host uh, spaces with Farcaster founders, you will get more <laughs> warps. Um, and I think that would be an important rule. Uh, but to switching gears a bit, I want to talk a bit about the, uh, the, the forecasters uh, architecture uh, as a whole. And it just for for context. Uh, for folks in the audience, if you want to know, know, learn more about architecture, you can go to GitHub, you can read the protocol and you know, read the code, all of that. Um, so we're not going to go into you know, too much details here, but um, you know, as we all know, designing sort of a decentralized system always uh, comes with trade-offs. Right. So can you describe on a high level uh, what are some of the trade-offs that Farcaster has chosen and what's the rationale behind that? And then we'll talk about future plans.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Let me, let me start with a couple of the big ones um, and then we can go from there. So I think the one interesting thing in decentralized social is every attempt uh, at decentralized social networks that we had seen when we first started working on Farcaster. So this is from Diaspora back in 2013, all the way to Mastodon. Everyone had sort of accepted this, the best way to build Decentralized Socialist Federation, i.e. you want a whole bunch of different servers. There's some broad level of compatibility, but each server can have uh, its own rules around what what can happen within that server. They can have their own rules about what other servers they peer with or talk to and so on. And that was considered the, the best way to do things. The initial version of Farcaster, Farcaster V1, was actually built with that same mental model because we thought that that was like a really uh, powerful way to do things. But we quickly ran into a problem as we started working with developers in building apps, which is if you have N different servers that all have different rules and that all have different latencies and exist in different parts of the world. Let's say you go try to build an app that just wants to display all the casts. Now you have to scrape all these different websites, which may have different guarantees, different availability. They may have errors in how they produce their data. And so um, the developer experience was actually really, really bad. And and the trade-off that a lot of these networks were making is they were saying, hey, we want to give every user, every host, maximum flexibility to change every possible thing they want about the server. But in exchange, it was very difficult to build applications on the network, at least apps that work consistently and at scale. And so we said, hey, what if we take that other trade-off? What if we actually make it as easy as possible for developers to build stuff on the network? And you know we take away a, a few degrees of freedom of, available from what users can do. And so th- that's kind of where the idea of Farcaster v2 and v3 was born, which was, what if we think about the network as a single global state? So. Rather than developers having to go and talk to each server and download all these all these different data and merge them together, what if you could just run a node you know borrowing from Ethereum and Bitcoin and how they've designed their systems and if you run the node, it just operates in a peer to peer way and downloads the entire state of the network all down uh, to your disk and you can very easily build an application on top of it now that part of, of the trade-off is nice, but what it does mean is that Farcaster is relative to these other networks, more restrictive on how much data you can have. So there are more limits on what data you can store on Farcaster, and we go out of our way to make sure the data is very compact and very easily syncable so that it's actually practical to have a single single node that can download the state of the entire network. So this is sort of an example of like a very big design trade-off that we've made with Farcaster, which I think is very different from what other
0: decentralized social apps have done. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, sorry, did, did you mean to continue? I didn't want to interrupt. No, I'll, I'll actually pause there and see if you have any questions. And you, you um, do not have, let's say, a consistent uh, timestamp, right? So, so, what are some of the things that you lose by having a single global state?
1: yeah so i I think this is well let me let me put it back into two things so i think one the thing you lose by having global state is uh kind of going back to what i said earlier you have to have a way for the state to be reconciled and fit onto you know a single machine or a small set of machines so that sync is actually pragmatic right and that goes back to all the storage limits and the cast limits and all of the things we've imposed there's there's a second degree of trade-off which i think you're hinting at there which is like hey Is it possible to get reliable time on the network? And actually, neither the federated nor the global state models or sort of the singleton models have reliable timestamps. Like, it's quite possible to go fake timestamps on any of these networks. The the only distributed system or or the the only popular distributed system with reliable timestamps happens to be a blockchain. And, you know, blockchains like Ethereum and Bitcoin have reasonably trustworthy and reliable timestamps but they come with the trade-off of not being able to store large volumes of data. So even if you think of something a hundredth the scale of Twitter and want to try to put this on Ethereum or blockchain uh, or any other blockchain, um, it actually becomes quickly and practically impossible. And so the balance that we've tried to make across all these different, spe- all these different trade-offs is what's the thing that's going to give users and developers the best possible experience um, while minimizing the pains of building on, on a distributed system?
0: Yeah, I guess the other follow-up question I have is, um, okay, uh, if you don't have, let's say, a billion users, uh, you could, you know, put uh, all the data on on a single machine. But you know, as the network scales, um, you know, do, do you still need to introduce something like sharding um, to partition the network into, you know, a few states, um, so, so so that. Um, the, the you can maintain a, a certain level of throughput?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So the first thing is, l- let me kind of talk about when this single-state uh, single model starts breaking down, right? So we did some early benchmarking and tests on, you know, just how many bytes of data goes into a cast, how many average cast does a user have. And the rough consensus that we have is somewhere between a million and 10 million daily active users. So, so somewhere between when we have a million and 10 million people posting and reacting and liking things every day on the Farcaster Network is when you can't get a single like machine on AWS that will successfully hold all of your data. So that's like around you know, 60, 64 terabytes of data. So up until that point, I think we can kind of throw more hardware at the problem and solve it and still have a bunch of replicated databases all across the world that have Forecaster data. Once we hit that point, or once we approach that point, I think, you know, as you mentioned, sharding is an approach we want to explore. So this is very different from federation. The notion of federation is that like users can choose which server they want to be on, and each server has its own rules about what it can do. Sharding is slightly a different notion where the system itself decides How to spread data across the network efficiently so that there is less duplication of data across the network but it still acts you know uh, from a point of abstraction as a single cohesive system so an example of sharding might be something like the system might come up with rules such that when you're a hub that comes online it says like hey you're now responsible for holding data from you know this group of fids to this group of fids and we'll assign a different set of rules to other hubs so that there's some overlap between what all hubs store, so nothing is stored on a single hub, but each hub no longer has to hold 100% of the network. It can hold maybe 80% or 60% or 50% and introduce uh, smarter and smarter ways to uh, scale
0: the network. Yeah, and, and speaking of, of storage, so um, uh, as I mentioned, the forecaster has a, it's a very efficient way of using storage, uh, but still you know, users have to pay for, for storage right so how do you determine uh, sort of how much uh, each user needs to pay if, if in order to, to get a, a new unit of, of storage and then basically how how do you design this economic uh, system uh, for the you know to, to de incentivize the uh, hub runners to, to join uh, you know the network
1: yeah so there are, I think two constraints that you know, we're we're trying to optimize for on the network. Um, the first is, let's assume let's imagine a network where there's no cost to posting on the network. We say, hey, you sign up and you can post an infinite number of messages, and all hubs will store all of these messages. Now that breaks down quickly when you have, you know, either a malicious user or someone who writes a bot that goes crazy that posts a billion messages, and all the hubs all over the world just start crashing. It's just impractical to store an unlimited amount of data on a, on a shared resource, right? You just get into tragedy of the commons pretty quickly. So the, the first goal for, um, for s- charging for storage is actually to prevent that tragedy by saying, hey, there's a price associated with this, which immediately makes it harder for malicious attackers to do it. And the second goal is to actually impose some limits on it to say, hey, we'll actually store the most, you know, this is how much you get for paying X dollars or X ETH which imposes a limit on what what of your cast history is actually retained on the network. So that actually makes it kind of useful, right? Even if you don't want to pay to store everything, you can pay for your most recent data on the network, um, and that still still makes it valuable. There's a question of, like, how do we actually determine the storage price? And, you know, what is the optimal price to be setting on the network to sort of strike a balance between growth and preventing people from abusing this sort of shared storage resource? And... I'll talk about how it works today and how it'll work long-term. The way it works today is we wanted to optimize for maximum flexibility and simplicity because we don't actually know the usage patterns of the network. Like when we went permissionless in October, that's the first time it had ever been live. We had no idea if we would get, you know, millions of, uh, of airdrop farmers and other accounts spamming the network or if it would be much more manageable. And so we launched with a contract where we the Forecaster protocol team has the ability to set the price. And we published a schedule saying, hey, based on how much uh, resources are being used, this is how we'll actually uh, set the price on on the network. And so that kind of has a schedule for the next three months that will follow. You can imagine that over time, what we're actually going to do is move towards a more automated system where it's less about, um, hey, here's what people want, but more of a bidding system where we say, hey, and the more people that join the network and the more congestion we start observing and the more hubs are running out of resources, the more expensive storage gets. And conversely, if no one's renewing and users are dropping off, then storage actually gets cheaper and cheaper. And this is sort of an automatic uh, sort of contract level logic that's baked in. So it just changes dynamically um, as the network parameters change.
0: Did that, that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, 100 um... percent. And then I want to uh, switch um, gears a little bit and then talk about the people who, who run uh, those hubs uh, and also you know, and the, the, the fact that we, you know, the, the hub is permissionless or anyone can, can run a hub. Um, so, so can you talk about, uh, first of all, how many people are running hubs uh, today and what is your goal so in the next, let's say, three to six months? Uh, what level of decentralization are you aiming for?
1: I think right now I would have to check the dashboard, but I want to say there's somewhere between 40 and 60 hubs running on the network at any one given point. Um, There's a good question on, like, what's a good litmus test of decentralization, right? And so I think there's a few factors that that pair into that. One is the number of hubs. Just the more there are, the less likely that a single failure or single error is going to take out any one of them. Um, The second is, you know... Geographical distribution you know if all your hubs are running in Virginia uh, on aWS east and aWS East goes down, then you know the the whole network is down even if you have you know three thousand hubs running at the same time and the third thing is actually dispersion of control, which is even if they're geographically distributed and even if you have a large number, you want them to be run by different entities that aren't linked together right because in some ways the people who run the hubs in aggregate determine uh, what changes get made on the network and what messages are accepted and what constitutes valid storage rules and all of that. And again, if uh, let's say that Warpcast was running 50 of those hubs out of the 60 hubs, then we still get to push together major changes. So looking at those three dimensions, like where are we right now? I think we're at a, at at fifty hubs, and you know we would like to get closer to a hundred, but somewhere between ten and hundred feels like a good point at which hey, it doesn't feel like there's a single point of failure. You know, a lightning strike or an earthquake somewhere isn't going to take down the network. The other criteria of dispersion of control, I think we're actually doing pretty well. Warpcast runs four out of those hubs, and I think all of the rest of them are run by individual people. So we control a small, small minority. Um, of the hubs on the network, a little less than ten percent right now, which I think is actually pretty good. As long as you know nobody controls more than twenty or thirty percent, I think we're we're doing reasonably okay. Um, the last thing on geographic distribution, we actually don't have a lot of good data on that today. And that's one of the things we were going to start collecting. We want to be thoughtful about privacy and things like that before we collect the data. But actually ensuring that hubs are running on, you know, out of multiple countries and across multiple continents would actually be really valuable to ensure in the future.
0: Yep. And now I think it's a good time to talk about sort of the roadmap. Uh, for the protocol, I know you mentioned uh, to some of your priorities during the last uh, dev call, but could you just talk about you know what are some things, what are some of the things that you're going to work on uh, for the next three months on the protocol yeah. side? Yes, there are two big
1: things that are taking up our attention right now. Um, actually, three big things. Um, the first one is we want Farcaster Connect to ship, and and to recap, what Farcaster Connect is. We want to make it a very simple experience such that when a user wants to connect Farcaster to an application, there's like a nice, um, you know, set of React hooks and things that a developer can just drop that will just handle everything from the user experience to requesting the signer to actually uh, executing all of that and completing the signer. So, you know, and Bill, you've probably seen this firsthand as you built the sign in with Farcaster, there's a lot of manual stuff you have to do right now. And we want to make it a super easy process and we want to support two cases. One, um, which is just authenticate your account, so just prove to the developer that you own X. And the second one is actually give developer permissions to post on your behalf. So there's going to be two different flows um, for two different use cases and a whole set of hooks and experience to actually make that happen. So that's that's one. The second priority is on replicators. And we have this app that we've shipped. Um, Shane has actually been doing a lot of great work on this, which makes it very easy to say, hey, I have a hub running. And I have a database in my app, and I want something to keep all of this data in sync, which is actually quite a complicated problem because if you think about it, the data is changing very rapidly. Um, there's lots of relationships between the data that, like, you know, the hub level are not mapped, but in your database, you might want to be able to join across these tables and do stuff. And so we've launched a new version of the replicator, like a V1 of like a really stable, reliable thing that we want to get out there. And there are some known issues with it. And we think there's like a decent amount of like optimization and improvements that we can make to make that a lot better. So listening to all the user feedback, getting the replicator to a point where it's a really uh, well executing piece of software is the other priority. The third one, and I actually just uh, announced this publicly before this call, though, Bill, I know we've shared this with you and other developers is we've actually want to upgrade the Farcaster contracts to make it easier for developers to read data and state from the blockchain. So there's a couple of problems right now, one of which is if you want to get access to certain kinds of data, you can't just go call a function and say, hey, like I want to go back and forth between a user's custody address and FID. You actually have to read all of the historical events or at least a good chunk of them and then parse them out. And then you're like, okay, I guess this person owns this ID, which is kind of a pain. Uh, we actually decided to make that whole thing simpler and launch a set of mappings on each contract that would just allow a developer to write a simple query that says, hey, just give me all the keys for user this user or tell me who owns this FID or tell me which address maps to this FID and it returns it in a single function call. The second change is there were also ways for, uh, you know, users who e- or developers who either accidentally or intentionally created a lot of what we called event spam. So there were certain ways in which you could generate events like creating FIDs that would affect all of the downstream apps because they're keeping track of this. And so we added some simple rules to these contracts to make it so that it was much harder to spam those contracts um, accidentally. So for example, registering an FID now requires you to rent storage and signers. You can add signers, but there's sort of an upper limit of 1,000. And if you want to add your 1,001 signer, you have to go back and remove an older signer before you can add the new one. So some of those rules, which will just make those events a lot more manageable for developers. So those are kind of the three things that are taking up our time right now.
0: Yeah, and I would just want to quickly comment on the uh, the Forecaster Connect. I think that is really, really important. And, and the reason why you can't log into Abura on the web today uh, is basically because we're waiting for Forecaster Connect. Um, then that will be easier for for anyone to, to just you verify that they're on Forecaster and then it can you know, get, get into uh, Um And we don't have a lot of time left. So I want to touch on some other uh, topics uh, pretty quickly. Um, you know, wh- One is uh, the protocol of governance. Um, so, so maybe talk a, a bit about uh, what is the current sort of governance system today and how do you see that evolve in the future?
1: So our approach to, to governance is defined by the philosophy of what we call rough consensus and running code. And it, it's a fairly simple philosophy that's largely predicated around, hey, if you can get take your idea, if you can ship a working prototype, uh, and if you can get a majority of the network to agree to adopt your change, that's it. It happens. And it doesn't matter who you are, there aren't any special rules, there aren't any special roles, and people can kind of just, like, push forward for changes that they want, right? And and the way this sort of works is everyone gets to opt into everyone else's decisions. So, um, you know, there's a team that owns the Farcaster Protocol contracts, and, you know, we can go and make changes to those contracts. But let's say, Bill, you disagree with what they're doing, you can go and fork that repo and make a new version of the contracts, and you can ship them, and you can go talk to all the hub operators, you know, the, the 55 that aren't us, and you can say, hey, this is better for everyone, let's switch over, and then people can switch over to the new contracts, and then now you're running the Farcaster contracts. In the same way, hub operators have a lot of control. Let's say the hub operators don't like what we're doing, they can switch over to a different version of the contracts, so they can change the code that they're running, and the users in the apps also have a choice. If they don't like what the hub operators are doing or what, uh, what's happening, they can like switch to different applications or stop using the network. So every group from protocol developers to hub operators to app devs and users sort of has some influence over the other group in terms of what's happening. And the way changes will get made is if someone's able to develop a working change set that they can push forward that has buy-in from all of these three groups.
0: Yep yeah, and and how do you see that governance structure evolve in the future do, do you think we're going to keep the same sort of governance mechanism or i i actually think it's
1: uh, this may be one of the more controversial things that that we sort of believe but i actually think like any kind of ossification or formalization of governance is actually bad for the protocol Like, I think getting too formal about who gets to vote, who gets to decide, who gets to move things is actually just going to result in a lot of nitpicking and low-level decision-making. And if you look at some of the most successful protocols out there, you know, from the Web 1.0 days, internet, email, etc., a lot of the biggest successes have this, like, rough consensus and running code philosophy underlying their systems. And conversely, if you look at the systems that haven't made progress, They've all been ones where there are formal boards or people who get to decide things and veto things and need to meet before decisions can be made, which just like significantly slows down the rate of progress. And I think especially in this early stage for Farcaster and definitely for the next few years, speed is much, much more important than anything else. We're still a very young protocol. We're still learning how to get users. We're still trying to build something that people want. And so worrying about governance and all those things that are like later stage concerns, I think, take away from just being successful
0: yeah 100% um and uh, i want to quickly touch on uh, direct cast uh do, do do you have any plan uh, on putting that uh, on a protocol level or the what's the roadmap for for direct casting
1: yes i think i think the long term plan is to get there and i, I know cassie's on this call so uh, maybe she can jump up and offer some thoughts after this. I don't know if that's easy to do with the way this call set up. But the, the the high level is we, we want to get to a point where other clients can incorporate DirectCast. And we want to get to a point where DirectCast work across mobile and web. And right now it's, it's a feature that's very constrained to uh, Warpcast mobile in particular. However, DirectCast, I think just the way they're developed and the way we built them uh, there's actually a fair amount of complexity and nuance, so one of the things we want to make sure that we're doing, and Cassie's been doing a ton of the heavy lifting on this, is every time we ship something, making sure that it works really, really, really reliably before we go and try to like expand the scope of what it does. So the roadmap for Directcast is probably going to look something like this. Uh, we have it on mobile now, and we've got it to a point where it's quite stable, significantly better than it's been over the last year. The next focus will be to get it on the web and to actually prove out that like, hey, you can have multiple clients all interacting and all of this works. And then if that works successfully, then we'll step back and say, hey, what's the way we can actually launch this in a way that other applications can build on this? And maybe some data is proxied or moved through hubs so that they actually form this sort of nexus for sharing data back and forth between different uh, clients producing
0: direct casts. Cool. Uh, last question uh, from uh, Chandrush. When does Farcaster start uh, sponsoring East hackathons as a way to support devs? Hint, East Mumbai is planned for March 2024.
1: So we've been, we actually ran an experiment a few months ago with just uh, these retroactive grants where we just basically gave money to projects that were building things on Farcaster. And at least for the short term, that's kind of an area that we want to focus on. Um, so, so rather than proactive funding, which is like going and funding people who want to build new things or sponsoring new things, what we actually want to make sure that we're doing is, hey, there's a lot of great builders already putting their time and energy into Farcaster, and how can we be spending more, of our, uh, spending more of Warpcast's resources supporting those developers first? And I, I think if we ever get to a point where we feel like that's tapped out and there's no other way to move forward, then we'll start exploring and to do like, okay, how do we go and fund new people who haven't yet, built into Farcaster, which, you know, hackathons and all these other things will form a part of that.
0: All right. I think we're at time. So uh, thank you very much for it. And uh, hope we'll talk soon uh, again. Cool. Thanks. And Abura is great. Like this worked flawlessly.